everyone, welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was Plenty and Strange Gods. I've got, you know, just a, a, another marvellous artist, uh, Tim Bonus, who's um, known to many as a vocalist and co-writer with uh, No Man with uh, Stephen Wilson. But he's a fabulous uh, solo artist in his own right. He's got a brilliant solo album out, Blows at the Scene. Welcome, Tim. Hi, uh, thank you. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> We are going chronological here, but um, the first track for me is very interesting. I understand it was, uh, you know, one of your first groups, Plenty. The track that we just played is a, a, a re-recorded version of uh, of that song. Yeah, it was um, a project I sort of embarked on in 2016. Uh, Plenty were one of the first proper bands I'd ever been in. And we recorded an awful lot of material. And in about 1988, I'd been working with Stephen Wilson for about a year as well as um, staying in the Northwest, which is where I came from. The band were based in Liverpool. And I had to make a decision, really, whether to stay in the Northwest with Plenty or to go and work with Stephen Wilson and try and make No Man a real thing. And um, it was actually a difficult decision because I I loved working with both of them. And it was um, very different types of approach with Plenty. Um, It was very structured, um, very arranged. We were very much into the idea of the song. With No Man, it was a much more spontaneous, improvised project. So say, I first started working with Stephen when he was about um, 18, 19 in, in 1987. Mm. And the first time we, we got together, we wrote two songs in an hour. You know, it was less about arrangement. It was more about expression. It was more about seeing what we could do with music. And so um, both approaches were really exciting. Both I enjoyed, but... Um, Stephen was based near London and we decided that we were going to take No Man quite seriously because a couple of record labels had approached us at that point. And um, so in the end, I decided to go with um, with No Man. But the material I'd never grown tired of. You know, I was still very proud of what we'd done as Plenty. And in the early days of No Man, we even did a couple of Plenty songs mm. um, in the live set. And one strange fact is that when we finally got signed to a major publishing label, in 1990 and when we got signed to a major uh, record label in 1991 mm. one of the three songs that got assigned was one of the plenty songs <laughs> and we ended up not recording it but it was a it was a song that's now called um, never needing um and so it was you know it was still quite crucial um and what was interesting is that when i committed full-time to no man perhaps the discipline and the songwriting and the care and arrangement that craft that we had in plenty um also became a part of no man we still experimented and we still did some pretty you know wild deviations but perhaps that um the element that i brought to plenty and that plenty brought to me i also um added to the no man mix yeah and what was it like going back to that music so it was the the original version of strange gods was that sort of 87 yeah it was yeah it it was it was really interesting i mean it could have been hellish and it could have been a terrible terrible (laughs) idea and it's something we'd kind of kicked around for years and finally i've no idea why it was actually one of those new year resolutions where i thought you know january 1st 2016 i've always wanted to do this i'm going to contact the band and it was obviously that classic let's get the band get back together email (laughs) and um the, the two men are plenty, and, and this is also one of the other reasons why we didn't, I suppose, continue beyond um, 88 and why I went with No Man, is that 
Um, the two other members of the band were uh, teachers, lecturers at various colleges in the Northwest, and they really felt, and it, it's quite funny in retrospect, because they were about, they were, they were quite a bit older than I was, but they were, gee, 28, you know. <laughs> and, and at the time, they felt they couldn't jeopardise their career yeah. by committing themselves to the band. So that was another reason. Um, you know, Stephen and I were younger and perhaps more foolish, so <laughs> we pursued this. And they haven't really pursued a, a career in music, but they continued to make music. And, you know, yeah, it could have been absolutely dreadful, but it, it was tremendously energising. We went in with, with a set of ideas, which was, let's be faithful to the material from the 80s. In other words, let's use the same arrangements mm. as much as we can, the same instrumentation. And so, in a sense, the the idea was to be faithful, but then see what we brought to it later on. And, and I think that what we brought to it was perhaps, you know, a greater sense of sensitivity, um, a, a greater sense of, um, I, I suppose, in, intelligence in the arrangement. I think that, you know, certainly in, in the 80s, there was always, um, you know, a far greater kitchen sink um, aspect to what we did. And so although we were faithful to the material, even to the point of keeping the original keys, it was very different. And, and weirdly, it was kind of reintroducing me to ways of singing, ways of writing that I'd long ago abandoned. And so it actually beca became quite a creative and quite an exciting project to be a part of. And the only real differences are that perhaps some of the arrangements are pared down. And I rewrote some of the lyrics that I was uncomfortable with. And my voice is very different because, you know, I, th I think I always mm. kind of said that when I was singing in the 80s when I was in my late teens and early 20s I've, I've no idea why I sounded like Scott Walker with a hernia you know it's, <laughs> it, it was not a good sound to have but weirdly it didn't sound that strange in the 80s and um, yeah. you know I, I, I remember as well I think it was the mission were on uh, top of the pops around yeah. the same time and, um, and my dad said that's you so you know <laughs> that, that, that gives you an idea I, I obviously had that kind of sisters of mercy croak at that point <laughs> So that was the main difference, really. I think the singing had changed a lot. And you, you've mentioned about that it, it kind of reintroduced you with, uh, you know, ways of uh, writing and, and, and recording. But did that kind of, and obviously I, I understand that the, you know, re-recording of that Plenty material was relatively recent. So did that influence or impact you in relation to your, your new album, Flowers at the Scene? I think it did, yeah. I mean, strangely enough, Flowers at the Scene almost felt like some kind of Rebirth. I mean, the material isn't particularly like Plenty, but um, I was enjoying working on the Plenty album. Probably that was, you know, what I spent most of 2016 and 2017 doing was working on the Plenty album. Um, and I'd finished Lost in the Ghost Lights in about the summer of 2016, even though it was released in 2017, because there's always a, a gap between finishing projects and them being released. So I hadn't written anything probably for about a year and a half. And um, in early 2018, I, I started writing again, and I also started writing again with Brian, who was one of the members of Plenty. And um, yeah. what we were coming up with wasn't like Plenty, wasn't like my previous solo albums, and it felt like a fresh direction. And in some ways, that combined with some No Man recording that I've also done recently, it's not a repudiation of what's gone before, but it is quite interesting mm -hmm. how it suddenly seems like the last 16 or 20 years you're almost waking up somewhere new, you know, an odd feeling. Of course, it may not sound like that to the, to the outsider, but that's, you know, how it feels making the music. Because I think whenever you make an album, you've got to feel excited by it and you've got to feel you're going somewhere new with it. And I always kind of feel that albums are 
either extensions of what's gone before. Um, so, you know, in the, in the case of No Man, Flowermouth was a more elaborate extension of our debut album. And then Wild Opera is the opposite, where it just completely flies in the face mm-hmm. of what you've done and it knocks down the edifice and you produce something fresh from the rubble. And, um, you know, there's always going to be similarities in what I do because of my voice and maybe because of my lyrical preoccupations. So, mm. <clears throat> you know, I hope with every album that what you get is perhaps what you're expecting, but also something quite different. There does seem to be a little bit of a, a thread in, in relation to the, the, the No Man track that you've chosen next, uh, River Run, which is from the, the early days of No Man. But again, uh, and this time about a decade later, you, you revisited it. This was true, yeah. I think we had to get rid of the Andrew Eldritch, Scott Walker with a hernia voice. Um, <laughs> but in the case of Speak, what we did was, um, in the very early days of No Man, as I said, we just used to produce music. I mean, I'd, I'd travel from the northwest to Hemel Hempstead about once a month, and we had a weekend in which we just immersed ourselves in, in recording and creating. And, and it was incredibly eclectic. So a lot of the very early material, I suppose, it's typified by first two songs we ever wrote one was called screaming head eternal and it was a two and a half minute brutal punk funk jazz piece and the other was called face last doubt and it was a seven and a half minute epic ballad Mm. we experimented in all sorts of styles as we're getting to know one another and with speak what we did we we just kind of assessed um what we thought was the best of the quieter material and with that, we didn't re-record. The only re-recording was the voice. So what you're hearing on River Run is everything from 1988. And then my voice re-recorded, my lead voice re-recorded in 1999. Even the backing vocals are from 1988. So Speak was just a case of mixing uh, the old material, being completely faithful to it, and just re-recording the voice because, you know, we were both uncomfortable with it by that stage. I think that, um, you know, my voice went through it through, through a massive transition probably in 1919 it was just kind of like you know i'm not even sure that i could sing in that style again i remember when i used to do gigs in the 80s i'd often um come into the dressing room coughing up blood <laughs> so so it was a very different style let's say yes much much more sort of natural these days i i think so i think that was it i mean what, what happened is that i think it was um no Man were kind of getting somewhere in the late 80s, early 90s. And I remember playing one of our demos to, to a friend. And the friend said, well, actually, you know, you've got something. And it is distinctive and it's good. But you're trying too hard. Mm. And it really kind of hit home. There were kind of two, two moments that hit home for me in terms of changing what I did musically. And, and that was one of them because it was absolutely right that I realized that I was kind of imposing a very intense vocal style and lyrical style on the music rather than reacting to the music or reacting to the moment um and the other time that did it was when i was uh, mid 80s i I did something crazy i I put out um a self-financed vinyl album Mm. with the band i was in and it was um by a band called after the stranger it was called another beauty blooms and and the idea of it was that it would just enable us to get on a a higher level a, a better scale if you like and it did get quite a lot of support from local DJs like uh, Mark Radcliffe. You know, we had people like Mark Radcliffe as our sort of local Northwest DJs and Roger Eagle was the Liverpool equivalent. And so it got a lot of local play and, and quite a bit of um, international coverage for some reason. And although I think the record is terrible, it's absolutely <laughs> awful, you know, and 
as I say, one of the greatest periods of self-education for me was listening to that on vinyl in the way that I listened to all of the music that I listened to by everybody else that I loved. And when I heard my music in relationship to everyone else that I loved, it just seemed pretentious, overstated, overwritten. It, it just seemed ludicrous to me when I could hear it in the context that I heard everything else. And the, the positive of that album was that that is actually how I got to meet Stephen Wilson, because Stephen Wilson read a couple of the foreign reviews and wrote to me saying, would you like to take part in a compilation album I'm doing? Because he was you know, quite the entrepreneur. He put out these uh, compilation albums of experimental and psychedelic and progressive music in the mid to late 80s. And we had a four hour conversation, got on really well, you know, did the usual, talked about what we hated about music and what we loved about music and then made a time to meet up. And that was when we first started writing together. And it was, it was a very easy relationship from the off, really. We just got together, talked for another two or three hours and then suddenly started recording and all of this music poured out of us. And, and though I was really happy with plenty, the difference with Stephen is that Stephen was an incredibly adaptable musician, open to almost anything. So, you know, we could just discuss any idea and pursue it. And so there was a real sense of liberation working in the early days of No Man. Speak, as I said, it captures the more delicate element of what we did at that time, partly because we felt the more vicious pieces we weren't as good at. I think there's that thing as well. In retrospect, you listen to it and you think, well, actually, this we were good at, this we were perhaps, you know, slightly embarrassing. At. So, you know, there is a reason. But, you know, you never know. Screaming Head Eternal might find its way onto a compilation someday. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, let's, uh, let's play No Man and River Run. See the way the 
So, uh, for, for me, this is this is just an exceptional track. Next, um, from again from No Man and Things Change from Flowermouth. It does really seem by this period that we were talking about before that you really found your voice. But again, as a in terms of finding a, a sound that really worked for you and Stephen, this seem seems to be it. The, the the track Things Change really does have that scale this time. Yeah, thank you. I mean, it's definitely one of my favourites as well. Um, I mean, Flowermouth, I think, was an album where we found our voice. I mean, when we got signed, we got signed in the wake of the whole Madchester movement, um, bizarrely enough, because we, you know, we used a lot of samples and beats as well in about 1989, 1990. And there probably just weren't enough bands doing that. So we got signed by you know, a major publishing company and then a pretty big label and a, and a major label in the States. And it seemed utterly bizarre. And the first album we did, it was a combination of what we'd been working on for the previous two or three years, plus material that perhaps had a more um, electronic, beat-oriented commercial bent. And most of that material we absolutely loved. In fact, you know, the album Love, Lows and Love Cries, it, it is in some ways a lot more commercial than what followed, but we genuinely liked the album. You know, it wasn't a case of compromise. But when we'd finished the album, it, it did fairly well, you know, got in the indie 
top 20, got a lot of fairly good reviews at the time. But the label wanted a lot more because the label we were signed to had Bjork and uh, The Shaman. And I think they really wanted us to do something in that style. And they put us in the studio with The Shaman's um, engineer and producer. And we made us re-record one of the uh, album tracks, a track called Painting Paradise, which which on the album I, I really like and does have a scale, um, a little like things change. And we hated the experience. And we, we had a, a meeting with the record company. And they said, well, you'll soon be doing what everyone else does, making music to make money. And we thought, well, you know, fuck you. We're never going to do this. And at the time we said, we think this is shit. Don't release it. And they released it. And after that point, we were just determined to do whatever we wanted to do, regardless of, of record company um, wishes. And so when we made Flower Mouth, we started the album off with a 10 and a half minute track with a couple of our heroes. You know, there's people like Robert Fripp, Mel Collins, um, uh, the great jazz player, Ian Carr. You know, we got a lot of our um, old heroes in this and thought, you know, we're just going to do what we want, how we want to do it. And we started with a 10 and a half minute ambient track. And, and at the time we were managed by Talk Talk's manager, Keith Asperton. And he took the album in and, and there was a degree of excitement after the debut. And they'd scheduled money for a video. They'd scheduled money for all sorts of things. And as soon as they heard this track, they pulled all of the money. <laughs> um, but we'd made the album with that in mind. We thought mm. if we're going to go down and get dropped like almost every single other band was being dropped from the second album. We were going to make the statement that meant a lot to us. And so we bought our own um, upgraded studio. We got musicians in that we'd loved for years. And the album started with the 10 and a half minute Angel Gets Caught in the Beauty Trap and ended with the seven and a half minute Things Change. And I think that those were the two pieces that really represented our mindset and what we wanted to do. And the great irony was that Mm. the label pulled a lot of the funding they pulled the video they certainly pulled the enthusiasm and yet internationally it got the best reviews of any album we'd ever done and sold considerably more than the debut album but that led to to even more confusion in a way because um you know we'd gone against the label's idea and, and, and i think the problem with no man is that we always sold well enough but mm. not well enough so you know we it, probably sold about 20, 30,000 copies, which is, you know, pretty decent. But they were selling half a million with The Shaman. So, you know, their expectations and our expectations were slightly different. You got so clever When heaven's lips 
And after we'd done this album, which, as I said, sold around 30,000, did respectably, got some great reviews and was definitely what we wanted to say artistically, they made it very difficult for us to make a third album. And so the, the advances were absolutely slashed. And over a period of two years, I think we were tremendously um, depressed about this. And we, we then decided that we were going to go against Flowermouth because Flowermouth had been a very epic, immense quite lush album and so we decided with what we were doing um, after that that we would fly in the face of that so we gave ourselves an hour we'd, we'd, we'd meet about twice a week and we'd give ourselves an hour to write record and complete a piece and over the period of about one and a half years as we were losing our publishing deal our record deal our record deal in america our record deal in japan we were making these very spontaneous, very experimental pieces. And um, that became the album Wild Opera, which was released in 1996. And originally there was a version of Wild Opera in 1995 that had one little Indian catalogue number and artwork. But they clearly were not interested. And so, um, and this is despite the success of Flamouth, they were not interested. And so we just got the rights back. And in um, 1996, we, we started again and we signed to a much smaller independent label called Third Stone, who at the time had a couple of bands that we really liked. They had um, Bark Psychosis, who we were fans of. Oh, yeah. And uh, a band called uh, Spaceman 3 were also signed to them. So Mm. we sort of felt that they wouldn't be bothered by whatever we came up with. And it was a good choice at the time because they weren't bothered by what we came up with. They just just put out what we came up with. That was great. So that's, uh, you know, Wild Opera was an artistic reaction to Flowermouth and it was also representative of the turmoil as the band were being dropped by everybody you know as I said even our manager left us at that point so you know from being quite touted in the in the British music press and having great reviews and even producing an album that we loved that sold pretty well we were suddenly you know left completely adrift and uh, and Wild Opera and Dry Cleaning Ray came from that period of us being adrift. Um, because the other thing, of course, that was happening at the time was that Stephen, his Porcupine Tree project was suddenly taking off just at the point that No Man was breaking down. And, um, you know, they worked incredibly hard. I mean, all of Porcupine Tree I knew because most of them had worked with No Man. Mm. Um, you know, Chris Maitland had been our live drummer, Richard Barbieri I'd done an album with, and he'd been in the No Man Live band as well. Um, And Colin Edwin had worked with No Man as early as the 1987 sessions because he lived around the corner from Stephen. And so on one level, it was great seeing friends doing extraordinarily well and and building up. And and the thing that I think they did that was perhaps, you know, really courageous is that they started playing in small pubs to crowds of about 10. Um, And at this point, you know, No Man was sort of selling 400 capacity indie venues and so we were on a different level but Mm. um we hadn't enjoyed the last couple of no man tours partly because of the record label and management issues and um and in that void 
um, Porcupine Tree grew and, and did fantastically. So that was also happening around the time of Wild Opera and Dry Cleaning Ray. Yeah, and uh, time travel in Texas from Wild Opera really does, for me, represent that sort of that darker edge that you've been describing from, from a no-man perspective. Yeah, I, I think it does. And, and, and it's funny, I, I wondered at the time if I was partly going through a nervous breakdown. Mm. And it, it is a strange thing because, you know, I know that in the scheme of things, this is incredibly small, it's incredibly trivial. But when you've built up to something that you greatly believe in, so, you know, since I started singing in, in the early 80s, it was, it was you know, this dream to, to produce this music that I loved and have some kind of um, presence and some kind of music career. And it certainly felt at that point as if it was all crumbling. And, um, and I guess that um, some of the lyrics on that album as well dealt with what I referred to as the pursuit of fame, um, victims of the pursuit of fame um, as well. You know, that it, it was to a certain extent people who'd, who'd had the success they craved and also you know this kind of desperation on the fringes of the music scene because one of the things i used to see a great deal i mean even no man with our limited power you know we'd have many people you know flinging demos in our hands to see if we could get them to the right people mm. and i don't think we ever had that you know even in my in my worst stage i don't think we ever had that kind of um wild-eyed madness that accompanies this pursuit of fame um but it was interesting to observe and a lot of the lyrics on wild opera have that um feeling so you know there was certainly our own sense of disappointment but certainly as well the lives of people we saw around us in in that music world
And then after that period, you um, you released, um, I think, a, a pair of No Man albums, Returning Jesus and Together We're Stronger. But you've uh, picked True North from Schoolyard Ghosts? Yeah. Um, well, the albums Returning Jesus and Together We're Stranger were incredibly important. I mean, Returning Jesus came about pretty much in the way that Flanners did, in that we'd just decided that we were going to do what we wanted to do regardless, you know, which, of course, had been the modus operandi on Wild Opera, but this was much more lush, much more beautiful. And I think we just decided that we were going to give in to our better nature, give in to what we did very naturally and what we hoped we did well. And so Returning Jesus, we took about four years making. It was really produced in that void. It felt, although Wild Opera had got good reviews and certainly had sold um reasonably from from the indie company's point of view um you know it wasn't exactly setting the world alight so we were kind of making returning jesus feeling that nobody really wanted this next album but we were going to produce what we felt was the most um beautiful and important thing we could so over a four-year period we assembled this album and once more it completely flew in the face of wild opera in that it was very far from brittle very far from fragmented it was extraordinarily lush and um we just took our time we we recorded some of it in the home studio we went to a rural studio in wales to record um real hammond organs real rhythm sections and so on we just decided we wanted a very different sound for the record and when it came out um unexpectedly it got the best reviews we'd ever had and um sales were also positive and we felt so um enthused by this that we continued to write 
and together with Stranger to a certain extent. Mm. As I said, albums sometimes they're they're complete denials of what's been before or they're extensions of what's gone before. And Together with Stranger was very much an extension. And there were a couple of tracks on Returning Jesus, like the title track itself, and perhaps a song called Lighthouse. And these were much more epic, slow, sad. And so we decided to take epic, slow and sad to its ultimate in, in the No Man universe. And we started together with Stranger Off with a 26-minute suite that was the, the slowest, saddest and most epic thing that we'd ever done and the album itself was about loss and coming to terms with loss really so you know it was interesting while recording it my uh, father who's had you know all sorts of illnesses was um suffering from cancer at that point and i think that there was Mm. that slightly overshadowing it because it then reminded me when I was a, a teenager, my mother had been killed. And so there was this whole thing where the emotions are flooding back. So I think that sometimes you, you remember albums vividly because of what they convey emotionally. And so that was was very much an album of loss, dealing with loss and, and the possibility of impending loss, really. Um, but despite that, it was great fun to make. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah. Well, the, for, for me, in terms of True North, your vocal performance is, is one of the key things that makes that track. I mean, you, you really do manage to sort of really capture that emotional feel from, from your vocals. Thank you. Well, well, True North was, you know, it was perhaps my favourite track from Schoolyard Ghost. And Schoolyard Ghost was put together in, in a very different way from other No Man albums because previously with No Man albums, um, we used to work on the basis that Stephen would write the vast majority of the music and then obviously I would write the lyrics and melodies and then we'd produce it together and we'd trade ideas about how it should sound and who we'd like to appear on songs. Um, and then occasionally I would write the odd song that Stephen would completely rearrange. So I'd say that, you know, with all of early No Man albums, an awful lot of the music is Stephen's vocal and lyrics mine and then I'd bring in a couple of um, songs that were near complete that Stephen would completely turn over with wild opera that was one where we just kind of wrote together operating from anything from sort of chords that both of us would throw at one another to samples that we throw at one another and there was a real sense of the two of us working together on that returning jesus was back to the traditional way of us working me sending the odd song Stephen sending me things that i wrote to and with schoolyard ghosts I'd written the vast majority of the material in advance um, or co-written this. Then when I presented it to Stephen, we did the No Man production of, you know, rewriting, reassembling Stephen, making more sophisticated my simple chords and so on. Um, And True North was was an interesting case because I, I brought it in as the introduction. So what you hear is the first three minutes was something that I'd written and, and pretty much sounds like it does on the album, really, as, as, as a lot of the demo remains in the finished version. And I played it to Stephen as something that I thought would be good for the album. And he didn't like it. And then I played it again. And then later, because I'd read Robert Fripp used to do this thing where he said that whenever he used to, he used to play ideas in rehearsals and the band would look at him and he just continued to play these ideas over rehearsals over a period of months until finally they were going, 
I said, yeah, what's the idea? That's really good, you know. And it's the thing they hated. And so I was kind of doing this where I was saying, oh, what about this one? And I kept on playing in the beginning of Truth. And one of the, the, the classic comments was, you know, look, I thought it was shit to begin with. You know, have I changed my mind? <laughs> but eventually this, this worked. And suddenly Stephen started developing the piece. So the second and third pieces um, where Stephen develops it musically and i think it just came into its own you know for me it's the piece as a whole that produces hopefully some kind of magic and um what what i also liked about the piece was was, was in a way it was kind of a depiction of clinical depression but it was it was a depiction of this actually finding the light and finding the recovery so it was one of those rare triumph over adversity songs in the no man canon and i thought that musically and lyrically it genuinely evoked that. So at the end of it, I, I was I was incredibly pleased with it musically and emotionally. And um, it was the first piece that we brought in a full orchestra on as well. So the the feeling of going into a studio in London and having you know twenty six piece orchestra playing on the piece it was piece it was it was amazing, it was absolutely thrilling. You know, you could feel it through your body rushing through. And um, so yeah. You, I chose True North for a variety of reasons and, and it definitely remains one of my favourite No Man songs.
we've next got the warm-up man forever from abandoned dancehall dreams I understand that's your second solo album but arguably the first solo album of yours that really gelled together as one whole piece yeah uh, I, I did a solo album in 2004 on one little indian called my hotel year and it never really felt like a solo album because because what it was was that i was working with a lot of musicians at the time anyone from rogerino to hugh hopper to a german musician called marcus reuter and none of them were really going anywhere so i had sort of three or four songs from a variety of projects and i decided to put together what i thought was the best of those with um a producer called david picking who's, who's now based in canada so it did have a unified sound, but it always felt to me as if I was compiling three songs from here, three songs from there, two songs from this source, one song from another. So it always felt a bit disconnected as an album. As well as that, I have no idea why. Um, it, it just had a very grey sound and grey production. So it was something I never felt as attached to. Um, Abandoned Dance or Dreams was completely different. It pretty much emerged in the same way that Schoolyard Ghost did, in that I'd written a lot of songs and co-written a lot of songs, and I presented them to Stephen Wilson with the idea of this being the basis for the new No Man album. I got to his studio in 2013, and he was very complimentary about the material, but said, look, you know, at the moment I'm in the middle of doing a very complicated album. Um, I just don't have the time to spare on No Man, but I will mix it. And as this is all yours anyway, why isn't this your solo album and so it really did feel much more like a solo album in the sense that i'd conceived it as an album it had the theme you know the whole idea of the abandoned dancers because you know as, as you know in yorkshire you know I, I was in saltaire and bradford and leeds recently and uh, you still have these magnificent buildings that might have been dancers or cinemas in the you know the 20s the 30s the 40s and so for me, it was just almost this this album where it was the lives that had passed through these these buildings that you know used to represent escape in a pretty repressive mm. society, really. So it's a collection of sort of short stories, but themed around these these great buildings that you still have half abandoned on British high streets. Mm. And um, so I put this album together and Stephen was right you know basically I'd, I'd written the material um and I had a very strong idea for the artwork so that's what I did I just kind of pursued it as my own album and that then led to stupid things that mean the world because um I wasn't expecting the positive reaction uh, that it got Feathers 
the enthusiasm of making the album and and the response it got led me to do stupid things that mean the world which again that's one of those albums that i see as being an extension of its predecessor really so in terms of that and uh, we're playing the the track press reset from stupid things that mean the world that basically gave you the com- confidence to as as a solo artist to really work with confidence without the, as, as much direct involvement from Stephen this time around? Absolutely, yeah, I think it did. I think, you know, totally helped. Because always with, with No Man, it was very much um, 50-50 collaboration. And um, I'd also co-produced and co-written an album for Judy Dibble from Fairport Convention um, just after Schoolyard Ghost. And I think that gave me the confidence as well that I could produce something and um you know abandoned dental dreams definitely did and, and you're right i think it's when it felt it's coming into its own in terms of the artwork and the music and these decisions were mine and i guess i was going to stand by them um because in reality it, i think that strangely enough for a singer i think i've always liked the idea of hiding behind a band identity so i always much preferred 
being in no man in the same way that you know bands i loved when i was a kid it could be anyone from pink floyd to blue nile they always felt more like pink floyd and the blue nile at the time i know now we know david gilmore and roger waters they've kind of come out a bit more publicly mm. um but at the time they were this great mystery that hid behind the brand pink floyd and it was those wonderful stage shows and that wonderful artwork and the blue nile were a similar band where it was this quiet emotional scottish band and at the time you didn't think of paul buchanan the songwriter or any of the individuals you thought of this thing that the blue nile represented and i think i've always wanted to mm. kind of lose myself in that style of band identity because for me you know no man has a strong emotional identity and a strong sonic identity and um you know i'm more than happy to be the unknown part of that sound that people know mm-hmm. In terms of creating some of that material, and I think Press Reset was one of these tracks, was that you were kind of working with a lot of samples at the time. I mean, in terms of that song, especially as it gets more sort of driven, sort of dance and rock based as we go into it, the sampling side does seem to drive the influence of that. I I think it was 50-50. I tend to write guitar or with the computer, and Press Reset was one of the tracks that I'd written um, on the computer with a series of samples and i built it up and then got real musicians to replace the samples um that i'd used and so it became a lot more organic in the end but yeah that was definitely built up with a series of um samples but there's a track on the album called know that you were loved and that's one that i wrote on acoustic guitar and i remember at the time i was i was delighted because it had 15 chords and um, this, this to me, it was a miracle, you know, uh, because <clears throat> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer in anything from two to six chords is enough. And um, I'd actually learned more chords during this time because um, I had a, a, a child in 2010 and, and he loved listening to music. And so I play the guitar to him and I realized that I was terrible. So. <laughs> I just took it upon myself for a couple of years to learn more chords, learn more styles. And um, so there were a couple of songs on that album that also developed from my increased um, acoustic guitar playing as well. Songs like Know That You Will Love. But yeah, Press Reset is a definite computer sample based piece because I think, you know, basically you use what works and what feels right to you. So I've never minded where material comes from, whether I've written the music or somebody else has written the music, as long as it feels right and it feels like something you want to pursue. It's the secret in your eyes You can't rise above the water You'll change your looks and cut your ties Then sink into the dark Boys and weekend girls 
lying wasted on the pavement. You walk the streets, shut out the world. Not wanting to be seen. And next we've got um, Worlds of Yesterday uh, from your, uh, I think, fourth solo album, Lost in, in the Ghost Light. Yeah, Worlds of Yesterday is the first track on Lost in the Ghost Light. And um, Lost in the Ghost Light, I suppose, was a little like Together with Stranger was um, in comparison with Returning Jesus. Together with Stranger took one or two elements of the more experimental and textural aspects of Returning Jesus and blew it up into an album. And Lost in the Ghost Light, took a couple of elements from Abandoned Dental Dreams and Stupid Things That Mean the World, the more sort of epic, progressive-influenced ballads like Smiler at 50 and Sing to Me, and, and actually probably something like Things Change from No Man as well, because that was a song mm. that I was playing live a lot at that time. And so it took that as a kind of a template to create uh, an album that was a full-blown concept. Um, everything I'd done probably since about probably since Together with Stranger, I think, had had an overriding theme, if not an overriding concept. And this one had an overriding concept. You know, it was it was meant to be a sort of eulogy to the album because it was 50 years since Sgt. Peppers. And Sgt. Peppers, if you like, was one of the great examples of the type of music culture, the type of album that I grew up loving. And it certainly felt and feels to a certain extent that, you know, the album may well be a thing of 
the past, the nature of music as a revolutionary force may well be a thing of the past. And so I created um, a musician who'd emerged from the psychedelic 60s and had a very checkered career. And so I had been writing on and off about this character for about 10 years. And so it was this on one level, it was a very specific account of an idealistic musician from the 60s who found themselves in 2017 playing to 50 fanatics at the Saltair Town Hall, if you like. <laughs> and, um, it was the realisation of that career and, and what music had meant and what it means, you know, both to the artist and the fan. So, yeah, it was an album-length investigation into this. And because of the nature of the character I'd chosen, the music reflected this. So the music generally is a lot more ornate and a lot more traditionally progressive. You know, it's probably the only album I've ever done that definitely operates in a specific genre. And I also got quite a lot of musicians from that um, era to, to work on it. You know, a couple of players from Camel and Ian Anderson from Jethro Tull. And, you know, it's wonderful having these people that uh, I loved as, as an adolescent helping out. But also, in a way, it really tied in with the concept of the album. And, and the artwork was, was a very detailed um, investigation into this as well. So you have the entire career of the artist in albums. You know, this artist that struggled to change with the whole... Um, punk era and the electro pop era and then <clears throat> as i've said mm. found themselves on the nostalgia circuit and that, that kind of always fascinates me how when you when you start with a great passion for music and you believe you're going to change the world in the way that the beatles changed the world or pink floyd changed the world and the reality is somewhat different mm. i think that was it the album is all about the dream and reality as well as being this homage to the classic album um because I've always made, you know, even I started off obviously making albums in the CD age, but I've always loved the discipline and the structure of 38 to 45 minute albums, partly because I think it suits the intensity of the sort of music I make and the sort of intensity of, of, of most pop music. You know, this is where perhaps the limits of attention are. You know, the album to me was a great creation. Um, and I think the CD age meant that people use the 80 minutes just to fill space you know there are so mm. many potentially great albums that are ruined by being 80 minutes um where you're adding filler or you're <clears throat> you know just trying to fill that space and so with no man you know most of the no man albums i think the longest we ever did was about 56 minutes you know we've always had generally quite short disciplined albums that that are very much conceived as listening experiences from beginning to end and um lost in the ghost like being a concept was was the ultimate of that but all of my solo albums were around the 42 minute mark and you know i probably spend about a month sequencing them because that was a thing that you know i still get a thrill from opening that digipack cd or that gatefold album and reading the engineering credits looking through the lyrics and listening to the way in which there's a kind of ebb and flow and an arc and a structure to a great album. Yeah, and, and that discipline that you applied on Lost in the Ghost Light really does seem to ensure that, that that album commercially and critically had, you know, a lot of success, which really must give that added momentum for your new album, Flowers at the Scene. I, I think it does, yeah. I mean, the, <clears throat> the thing that was interesting about it is, uh, I, I guess it was one of the albums where there wasn't any cognitive dissonance as well if this makes any sense because i think that 
because of my associations, um, I've become very well known in progressive mm. circles and classic rock circles. And the thing is, I love progressive rock and classic rock, so that's all good by me. But I'm not sure I've ever necessarily made that type of music. I think, you know, No Man, as I've said, emerged out of the indie dance mm. Manchester scene. And I think in the early days produced what you could argue was a kind of a proto trip hop. You know, if you listen to the very first No Man singles in 91, um, they're sort of doing what bands like Portishead and Massive Attack are doing by the mid 90s. That's the sort of territory we were in. And I've always felt that perhaps in the, in the same way that somebody like, I don't know, Peter Gabriel, Peter Hamill, maybe Bill Nelson have been fated mm. in the progressive scene, but don't actually produce that music. You know, maybe it's, it's what you'd call is um, yeah. it's progressive by its nature. You know, somebody like Gabriel, somebody like Hamill, somebody like Fritt, Brian Eno, they maintained a genuinely progressive outlook in their music because it changed with the eras and, and it didn't change in a... Mm kind of compromised commercial way um and i think that was the other thing was lost in the ghost like that suddenly you know if you'd come to my music through the progressive and classic rock sources this album made complete sense as well hmm. whereas i'm guessing if you come to abandoned dental dreams some people are going to think great you know this is perhaps pushing what my taste would be whereas other people might think this is hideous it's pushing what my taste might be so, so I think that was the other thing was lost in the ghost light as well, that it kind of, it fully made sense the way in which it um, existed and was presented to the marketplace, if you like.
So in terms of flowers at the scene, where, where do you think embodying that uh, sound that, that many, many people have kind of entrenched in that prog rock sound would feel? Or, or, or is it more, you know, pushing the boundaries like, like Abandoned Dancehall Dreams did? I think it's more, it's, it's, a, it's a restart, like Abandoned Dancehall Dreams, like Wild Opera. Mm. And of course, within that, because of my voice, my lyrical preoccupations, there are going to be similarities to certain things. And because it came out of the Plenty album in some ways, as I said, the album reintroduced me to ways of of singing and writing. And it perhaps has more of a 
a similarity to maybe Flowermouth era No Man in a way. I mean, sonically, it's quite different. Mm. But in some ways, it's almost like it's leapfrogged the last 25 years and found itself in a different space. But, but of course, you know, the, the lyrics, the voice, the production is very much now. And, and I'm not writing with any era in mind. I mean, you know, it's another thing. When, when I write, as I said, I think I, I just get carried away by ideas and carried away by albums. And I've got to be interested or excited by them to actually complete them. Because I think there's just no point in this world where there's far too much art and far too much music and far too many books to put things out for the sake of them. I think you've got to be committed to it. And with this, I got really excited by it. It was probably it was early 2018 when I suddenly started writing a lot of material for this album. And it was developing an identity which was very different from Lost in the Ghostlight and that I liked. And it's only in retrospect you see that maybe, okay, that has certain aspects of returning Jesus or flower mouth. Mm. Uh, but as I said earlier, hopefully I think that it kind of would give people who like my music, I think it would give them what they want, you know, perhaps 50% of what they want, but I hope that 50% of it is giving them something different, something fresh. It's going off in tangents that, you know, I found exciting and that would maybe, you know, challenge some expectations. Yes, I mean, it does really seem to be a theme of um, our discussion today and um, in in relation to carrying out the, the vision that you have for the sound that you want to make rather than following the fashion of the day. And that makes the, you know, the material that we've, we are playing today, you know, it, it doesn't date. I think, yeah, it's interesting because I don't think we ever did follow the fashion of the day. I think, you know, the closest we ever got to that was when we were originally signed and we'd started incorporating dance beats into the music. I mean, you know, you've played River Run. We were, you know, we loved all sorts of music. That was the other thing with the difference between Plenty and No Man. With the guys in Plenty, they had very eclectic tastes, but they didn't have as eclectic tastes as, say, myself and Stephen, you know. So Stephen and I, we'd get together. We loved 60s singer-songwriters. We absolutely loved jazz. We absolutely loved prog rock. Um, We loved industrial noise. You know, there was this thing that nothing was off the agenda, really. And Mm. when we started incorporating the dance piece, it's because, you know, we might be listening to Nick Drake on one level, but also we heard the Public Enemy stuff and thought it was astonishing. Now, obviously, we weren't going to sound like Chuck D., um, but, but we used aspects of what we thought was fascinating about the production on a public enemy record. And we kind of combined that with what we were doing, which was a more sort of this mortal coil, eerie, atmospheric, um, classically inspired ambient pop, if you like. And I think that when we came up with things like Colours and Days in the Trees, it was entirely an accident that coincided with the fashion of the day. All of the music to me just kind of seems like a, a continuum you know i've never felt like i've had any kind of career and i, I only realized i had a kind of career when we played in i think it was no man played in poland in 2012 and it was stunning you know it was a big venue sold out with people coming to me you know it was, it, with copies of cds and vinyl albums to to sign you know, it's my my beatles moment you know we we even had the coach rocked back and forth in the uh, car park hmm. and it was only when i was seeing these albums from different hmm. periods you sort of realize my God, there's kind of a career and there's my, maybe even a career arc because, you know, when you're writing the music, you're just lost in writing the music. You don't kind of think, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. Um, it's just whatever preoccupies you 
at any given moment. And of course, that can lead to going off in fresh directions. And it can also lead to you repeating yourself because you're not thinking about what you've done before. Sorry, and one thing I was going to say as well with Flowers that seems another big difference is it's probably the first album since Returning Jesus that doesn't have an overriding theme or an overriding concept. It's a collection of 11 very different arrangements um, and 11 very different lyrics that I kind of see as cinematic short stories. And um, the only way in which it fits with the other pieces and perhaps with Abandoned Dance or Dreams is that it was conceived as an album musically. So in terms of the dynamics between the pieces, I sort of knew what I wanted in that respect. You've involved a, a range of different artists on a number of tracks on Flowers at the Scene, which you know provide slightly distinct edges to to particular um, songs from that album. You know, Rainmark, for example, has Jim Maffeus on. Um, you know, very uh, renowned guitarist. Um, how did you get Jim involved in, in in relation to that song? And I think he might have been on one or two of us as well. Yeah, Jim's on about three of these songs. Um, he was on four originally, um, but he's on three of them. And, and Jim had worked with a while because he and um, Kevin Moore from OSI asked me to sing on one of their albums. And um, I did this probably about eight years ago and really enjoyed it because it, it sent me somewhere new. You know, when I'm asked to do sessions, generally speaking, it's because people want a particular sound and because they're fans of No Man or my solo work. So it kind of sounds similar. And doing the OSI session, it sounded nothing like anything I did. And so it was great to be asked. And I, I really liked the um, the resulting song, which is called No Celebrations. And we just kept in contact after that. Um, he um, played on another album of mine a few years back. He asked me to help with a Fate's Warning song about four years ago. And, and we just kind of keep in touch. And so when I was making this album, I sort of used him in the way that, say, Bowie used to use his guitarist, you know, when you had people like Adrian Blue, Robert Fripp, or Ronson. And they were, mm. if you like, the stunt element. They were the surprise element. And mm. Jim is a great guitarist with a very, very taste. And I know that, you know, his own playing encompasses jazz, classical, ambient, as well as the prog metal he's very well known for. And so I just kind of gave him a context that I thought he would find fresh. And what I wanted was somebody to do something that was unexpected. And that's exactly what he did. Um, because when I was assembling the tracks of this album, it was done in a very different way. Um, you know, my main creative sounding board and, and co-writer on this was, was Brian Hulse from Plenty. And I was getting four different drummers, three different bass players, three different guitarists doing parts on a lot of the songs. And then at the end of it, sifting through this, and it was a great process because I think it produced something that was more direct, but also more musical. Mm. And and also, as you're doing this, you're, you're learning more and more what it is you want and what you don't want. So the title track, Flowers at the Scene, um, you know, four different drummers tried for this. And it might be too busy. Um, it might be too spartan. It might not groove enough. There were all sorts of things that led to this. And so so Jim was one of the guitarists that I got in to play. And I ended up using quite a few of the solos he gave me because it was exactly what I wanted. In the sense, it was what I wanted, but it was what I wasn't expecting. And with a lot of the musicians I got involved from, you know, Colin Edwin um, to the drummers I'd, I'd asked to play on it, it was because I was aware of what I was after, but I also wanted to be surprised. And, and that was eventually what I used on the album. 
Um, but yes, there are all sorts of alternate versions of songs with different guitarists soloing on them, different drummers playing on them, um, a different double bassist, and so on. So, you know, there are quite a few alternates of tracks that um, ended up on Flowers at the Scene. Brilliant. Well, let's uh, let's play Rainmark. Save 
Well, we've got here, we've got to uh, our final uh, track today, Tim. It is the track that I think uh, finishes Flowers at the Scene, What Lies Here. Yep. That's um, a song that features two of my musical heroes, uh, Kevin Godley and Andy Partridge. How did you involve them and what was your vision for getting them uh, involved in that track? Well, again, they're two of my musical heroes as well. And um, with Kevin, it was because I'm Not In Love was one of the first singles, if not the first single I ever bought. And there was uh, an even sadder B-side called Good News, and it was sung by Kevin Godley. And I became a huge fan of 10CC and Godley and Cream when I was at school. And Kevin tended to sing the, the very sad album closers. So when What Lies Here had been written, I knew it was going to be the last track on the album. And I also felt it should have a voice other than mine on it because it's it's reflecting the experience of perhaps two people. You know, it's it's the same scene supposedly seen from two perspectives, but actually they're seeing it from the same perspective, but not realizing it. There's a kind of a communication gap. And I wanted another voice. And um, mm. it was one of those weird things where I just kind of walked outside, I think, doing the washing, you know, putting the washing on the washing line and thought, Kevin Godley. And so I immediately ran into the house because I knew um, hmm. an American publicist who worked for him and managed to get the song to him. It's one of those bizarre things where an idea comes to a fruition very quickly. So within a day, Kevin had the song and was really complimentary. He said he loved the song, didn't know why I'd want anyone else to sing it. Hmm. And so I explained the idea and he went along with this. So, yeah, it was because, you know, his voice was one that I found very affecting from an early age and it was a great thing on this album i got two of my favorite vocalists from when i was was a kid on it so when i was very young i guess peter gabriel david bowie kevin godley peter hamill kate bush would have been my favorite singers and to have got peter hamill and kevin godley on this was um you know Mm. still quite remarkable it's one of those things that however often you work with your heroes they still remain Mm. your heroes or your love of that music still remains um, so that was it, really, that I, I just heard his voice on the piece. Mm. In the end, I used uh, his backing vocals on the piece, but there is a version which is going to be given away as a free MP3, which features his lead vocals as well. And I opted for my lead vocals on this because I think of the consistency of the album more than anything else. It felt as if it was an odd coda to what had gone on, whereas I think the song as it is makes perfect sense. As, as the last song and and then kevin adds a kind of soulfulness and sadness that is mm. essential to the piece so yeah there's there's two versions of that andy's somebody strangely if you're going to get a reference to an old uh, itv show called magpie here yeah, i don't know if you ever remember magpie yeah, yeah. but <laughs> in the late 70s um godly and cream were on that doing the, the, the consequence album showing the gizmo and oh, how yeah. they're making the consequence album so i remember this and then probably, it might have even been in the same episode, but Andy Partridge mm. appeared. And it was one of the first, I think it was um, Statue of Liberty. It was one of the first XTC singles. Oh, yeah. And again, I remember being absolutely captivated by it because there was always a kind of quirky musicality in everything mm. XTC did. And so they became one of my favorite bands. And, you know, albums like... Drums and Wires, Mama, Apple Venus, Volume 1, have all been soundtracks to various phases of my life. And I think that Andy Partridge has remained, you know, a truly intelligent, questing, talented individual. And I, when I set up Burning Shed, which is a music company I co-run and co-own, XTC were one of the bands I desperately wanted. And I think I pursued this for, you know, a decade or so. 
And um, eventually, through a mutual contact who became um, Andy's manager, it happened. And um, this led to me, you know, Andy doesn't live that far from where I live now. And so I ended going to the um, often spoken about Partridge Shed. <laughs> and um, it was great, you know, spending a day with him in his house and studio. And um, one of the best moments for me was that I'd said that my favorite, perhaps my favorite XTC song was Love and a Farm Boy's Wages. Ah, yeah glorious track and so he did a beautiful solo performance there and then in front of me wow. and his voice and playing was as good as it ever was and you know i think it's a my, myself and of course i've told him this yeah. i think it's a tragedy that he's not been putting out the work he's been writing mm. since mm. the apple venus albums because he's still got the voice he's still got the talent if anything yeah. you know he's perhaps perfected certain aspects of his craft but I think he feels slightly adrift outside of the XTC identity. Yeah. I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but there's a lot of great material that, that isn't being heard. And so Andy, I'd been in contact with for a few years, and um, I'd always been meaning to ask him. And there was a sort of end of holiday season sadness about what lies here. And I always associate that with XTC. For some reason, there's, there's an incredible Englishness in their work. And so I sent it to Andy and immediately he got it and, you know, got the feel and gave, you know, a tremendous um, amount to it. In fact, once more, like Kevin probably performed far more than he'd, um, than, than was actually used on the track. Um, but it was wonderful having these guys still being conscientious about what they were doing. You know, they've certainly got that ability that, that I loved when I was younger and still love now. And, um, it was certainly not a kind of cookie cutter performance from either of them. Brilliant. Well, Tim, I wish you all the best with uh, Flowers at the Scene. I'm mightily impressed uh, by that album and, and, and your body of work. Um, before we go, you've got a website uh, where people can get in touch and, and find out more, I assume? Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, tim.bonus.co.uk and there's also the Facebook page and also uh, burningshed.com, which is the company as i started in 2001 and originally it came out of an idea of mine for uh, making cost-effective experimental side projects and it then became a proper label and then became host of stores so it started hosting no man and porcupine tree and eventually has gone on to host stores for the likes of robert fripp king crimson jethro tull thomas dolby xtc Brilliant. quite a lot of artists really and it's all been through word of mouth and and because of course it was set up by musicians we've kept everything incredibly transparent and very artist focused um and yeah I, i'm not sensing a pledge style collapse just yet but <laughs> before we go um, am i am i right that there's there's plans or possible no man album in the works with steven absolutely yeah we got together at the end of uh, last year and we'd been talking about doing an album together for years. And we've had a couple of recording sessions since Schoolyard Ghosts. And finally, we had that window to, to write and record. And we spent three days and late evenings absolutely immersed in making music. And this was not like Schoolyard Ghosts at all, where I'd brought in a lot of material. This was right back to the beginning of the band. This was the two of us in the studio, trading ideas just getting excited by what we were coming up with. So it was, it was actually a fantastic experience and very much a kind of full circle in a way. And um, we've come up with an album's worth of new No Man material. And at the moment, that's what I'm working on. I'm re-recording 
the vocal parts in my home studio for it. And when Stephen gets back off tour in April, he's going to be adding some parts and we'll also be getting in um, a couple of additional musicians. And the great thing about it is that I think it sounds 100% No Man, but it will not be like any No Man album that ever existed in terms of its structuring, its sound. It again felt quite fresh although it's building from something that we originally started 25 years ago so this is an album that is 25 years in the making in some way although a lot of it was written and recorded um late last year brilliant what an incredibly exciting period for you and you know in terms of of the year so i look forward to you know more success in relation to your new album flowers at the scene and what looks like an epic No Man album in the works. So thank you so much, Tim. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your music and, um, uh, you know, it'd be great to stay in touch with you. Yeah, no, my pleasure, absolutely. All right, cheers then. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's been almost 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.